0: You so much um and my talk follows on actually rather well from that very moving talk that and the stories that we've just heard shared by sarah because the thought in my mind um i was walking here today across north london um i'm actually speaking to you from my son's flat in in Crouch End, but I'm a North Londoner born and bred. And as I walked across the landscape of North London um, to get here, I thought, God, I've been thinking about Coco Chanel for such a long time. It's my relationship, I suppose, with her and that I really started researching um, into Chanel's life in the late nineties. And that was when my son was just a baby. And, you know, now he's a man. And the the phrase that went through my mind as I was walking here um, is Margaret Atwood's wonderful phrase. And it's the title of one of Margaret Atwood's uh, books, Negotiating with the Dead. She says that all writing is negotiating with the dead. And certainly that's always been my experience. um, And this book is, is no different. But I suppose what is different about this book is that the first edition was published in 2010 and then a second edition was published in 2017. And now six years on, there's there's another. I've returned yet again to negotiate with the dead in the form of talking to Gabrielle Chanel, thinking about Gabrielle Chanel. And the fact is... She is this incredibly enigmatic and mysterious figure who continues to have the capacity to astonish me. When I first started thinking about Chanel, I would have still been a a little girl because my mother was married in a Chanel little black dress, or rather it it was a little black dress that was cut from a Chanel pattern. Um, and this was a very radical and extraordinary thing to do as a 21 year old um, in 1960. And for my mother getting married in a Chanel little black dress, I think that what it taught me when I was old enough to see these wedding pictures and to see the dress itself, which I loved, and of course it seemed to me to be synonymous with everything that was grown up and glamorous and chic, but that it was also a very subversive thing to do. And Chanel once said, elegance is refusal. And there in my mother's wedding dress, that refusal to conform by wearing a white wedding dress was there. But Gabrielle Chanel, whose handprint you can see now, um, I found this handprint when I first started looking in the Chanel archives, which would have been in the late 1990s. And this handprint was one of the first things I came across and I found it so compelling. If you look at her signature, because the name she was born with is Gabrielle Chanel, Coco Chanel came later. But if you look at the signature, it says... Gabri and then there's a little break L Chanel Chanel herself Chanel the woman and i think that the reason that chanel continues to compel me as well as many many other people um and we know that she is compelling because the exhibition that's about to open at the victoria and albert museum which is the first major exhibition of Chanel's work in the UK, has been the fastest selling show ever at the V&A. Is that, what is it that Chanel tells us about being a woman? Well, she was born in the 19th century. Uh, she was born illegitimate at a time when it was a source of shame and humiliation. She was born in 1883 and her father was a traveling market trader. He sold needles and threads and ribbons and buttons, which is something I find so touching because these are the, the things that will then give her her vocation, um, the needle and thread that will allow for her escape. But he was a man who was always on the run from um, his children, from the mother of his children. And Chanel's mother died in abject... Poverty when Chanel was just 11. Their father wasn't there as usual. And Chanel and her four siblings were with their mother in one room um, in a little market town in rural France. And as she died, and she died of TB, and they would have been alone with her as she died. And finally, the father was found. And he abandoned his children. Um, the three daughters were sent to an orphanage run by nuns in a convent, and the two little boys were abandoned to work as unpaid farm laborers. I mean, really a form of slave labor. So Chanel was born with a with an innate perhaps sense of um of abandonment. And those issues of abandonment, of humiliation, of shame, which were so much part of her childhood, also become the source of her strength as a designer. So the picture that you see here is her as a young woman when she is making her way in the world. she has left the convent, she's left the orphanage, and the options that were open to her were to either be a nun, which she certainly didn't want to do, or be a seamstress, and because she'd been taught to read and write, she'd been educated by the nuns, and she'd been taught to sew. So she became a seamstress, but she also worked in a tailoring shop and tailoring men's clothes, and this was incredibly um, important, I think, when she started to adapt the clothes that men wore, and not just any man, gentlemen wore, um, including the military officers that she her path crossed because she was working um, in a garrison town, Moulin, where the French cavalry regiments and regiments were based. And she was altering um, riding breeches, uh, for for the various soldiers. And one of them took a liking to her. Uh, she was also singing part-time, a sort of unpaid singer in a little cafe, which is where her nickname Coco came from, because she only had a limited number of songs in her repertoire. And one of them um, had the chorus about Coco. So here she is with one of those cavalry officers. Um, this picture is which is all the pictures you're seeing are in the new edition of my book. And they're from the Chanel archives and they've never been seen before. Um, her capacity to astonish me is partly visual because in finding these, these old pictures from archives, um, I continue to be astonished at the new material that is found. But if you see her in this picture with the cavalry officer, um Yes, she's got the the small waist and the hair piled up, but she's already developing a different kind of style, which is that of wearing something much, much simpler than other women would have been wearing at the time, which is frills and flounces and enormous hats and when she started having an affair with a cavalry officer and then went to live with him when he left um, the army, when he'd served his commission. And she went to live with him in his chateau, which was about 50 miles from Paris, where he kept a string of polo um, ponies, because he played polo and racehorses, and indeed a string of mistresses. And so she was one of several mistresses but she made herself look different to the others by the clothes that she sewed for herself. And what was remarkable about those clothes was that she started wearing men's trousers, originally based on sort of riding breeches, um, men's shirts, a little man's tie. You can see this here and This is before she sets up in business. She's also learning to ride at the same time. And this is a really radical way to look. This picture was before the First World War. So it's before women um, entered the workforce in really, really large numbers during the First World War. But she is giving herself, as you see in this picture, the sort of Sense of freedom I mean she 's astride the horse she 's not side saddle, and sartorial ease and comfort and dignity that had previously only been the preserve of men. The other very radical thing that she does, apart from wearing trousers and cutting her hair, is to stop wearing corsets and this becomes massively significant and a very important part of her success um when she goes into business in 1910, she starts out and becomes famous for her hats and she opens a millinery shop. Here she is modelling her own hat. Um, and this is the first time that Chanel appears as her own best model, which she always was in 1910 um, in a French Fashion magazine. And although the hats might look quite elaborate here um, to us to modernize, they are in fact incredibly simple compared to the hats at the time. And people want to look like Gabrielle Chanel. She never really needs other models to make her clothes famous, because as well as the clothes that she is designing, she comes to represent a form of womanhood, a kind of woman that has not really existed before, where she is creating clothes, but she is also, she's not a muse. She is, she always called herself an artisan rather than an artist. But at the point of this picture, when this photograph that you're seeing now was taken, by this point, she's become friends with Picasso, Cocteau, um, Stravinsky, Diaghilev, the Ballet Russe. And as modernism begins to emerge in Paris after the First World War and in the aftermath of the First World War, she is creating on her own terms and this picture that we see now i love if we could just go back to that picture before yeah what i um one of the things i admire about chanel and you see it in this fierce gaze is the way she embodies the female gaze so she's not a muse to other male couturiers or indeed other artists by this point she is influencing picasso and in the new edition of my Book. I did a lot of research, um, which shows her influence on Picasso. He, Picasso, called Chanel um, the only woman in Europe that I can talk to, sort of on an equal, as an equal. And here we see her famous little black dress. This is very similar to the little black dress that my mother um, wore to get married in in the nineteen sixties. And if you or I were to wear this original little black dress. Um, this particular image comes from 1926. If we were to wear it now, it would look as appropriate, as chic, as timeless. And this is, I think, key to understanding Chanel. Uh, this is also Chanel Number no. Five, which becomes associated with this sense of of the modern woman. Um, but what is key to understanding Chanel is that she becomes associated not only with female independence and liberation and strength and autonomy, but also with modernism. But she's constantly reinventing herself. If we just stop here, you'll see her in her English period. Um, I discovered these pictures that we've just seen um, when I was doing some research Um in the Duke of Westminster's archives. She met and fell in love with the Duke of Westminster in the 1920s and started going salmon fishing in Scotland. And this is where she discovered um, the joy of wearing gentlemen's tweeds. So she here has adapted the Duke of Westminster's sporting tweeds, but for herself. Again, if anybody was to wear those clothes now, you would we would look totally of the moment and you'll see um, some of these images um, in the v exhibition or rather you'll see the clothes that she's wearing in these images if we could just go back one um, that's Chanel with her friend Winston Churchill she becomes friends with Winston Churchill in this period in her life which is to be very important um when it comes to the Second World War, her controversial Second World War. She's also dressing the British aristocracy, including in the picture that we will now come to um, the young Queen Elizabeth, or rather the woman who will become Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Here is Elizabeth Bowes-Lyons in 1922, the year before she marries the duke of york the year before she becomes the duchess of york but here is our future queen and the future our future queen's mother wearing chanel in 1922 so the one and here is the famous picasso that i wanted you to see so this picasso which was done in 1918 is directly influenced by Chanel's designs, her bathing suits that she is designing. She also designs um, Picasso's first wife's wedding dress, Olga's wedding dress, and Olga was a dancer in the Ballet Russe. So Chanel is creating um, images really for the Ballet Russe, clothes for the Ballet Russe, but is also directly influencing Picasso as early as 1918. So in all of this, this picture that that we're now looking of Chanel, it's in the run-up to the Second World War. And this picture, if we just pause here for a moment, is Chanel standing um, in her apartment at the Ritz just before the outbreak of the Second World War. And you'll see that little bust in the background. Um, That's actually... Edward VIII, who, when he was Prince of Wales, um, was one of the many men that was wooing Chanel. So one of the reasons I wanted to uh, readdress the Second World War in this edition of my book is that there's been um, a kind of feeling that, and it's it's a, a description of Chanel that is used quite freely, that somehow she was a Nazi. Um, because of her relationship with a German spy, or a, a German diplomatic attaché during uh, the occupation of Paris during the Second World War. If we can just go back, because we're leaping forward a bit. Um, and she did indeed uh, have a relationship with a German during the occupation, but it also turns out she was supporting the French resistance, And that material is very, very new. Um, I only discovered it literally just three months ago. So um, in time for the V&A exhibition um, and in time to include in the new edition of my book. But I think it's important to remember that when Chanel has been attacked and I'm not here to try and whitewash her, for her choices during the war, but men weren't in the same way. Picasso's choices, for example, to continue to live in occupied Paris during the Second World War um, to sell his paintings to the Germans. I don't think that Picasso was attacked in the same way afterwards. And you certainly, other male couturiers like Jacques Fath, Marcel Rocha, um weren't scapegoated in the same way. I still think that Chanel as a woman is judged in a way that a man might not have been, but she makes this extraordinary comeback after the second world war. And this is the picture that we're seeing now of her and her comeback. And that is when she's in her seventies by then in the 1950s. And as I get older, um, I become, I suppose, more and more admiring of the way that Chanel could go on reinventing herself and keep her relish for creativity at a time when in, you know, her seventies, when many other people would have stepped aside, she comes back partly because she's so enraged at the way Christiane Dior has reintroduced corsets for women. And she she goes back to the kind of timeless design that has already made her famous, that the little suits, the soft, loose suits that are comfortable, the ease that she gives to women. and then, she, But she's also dressing women like Jackie Kennedy. So if we move to that next picture, that's Jackie Kennedy wearing a pink Chanel suit, and she's with JFK, and this is the day that JFK is assassinated. And Jackie's pink Chanel suit will be splattered with her husband's blood, she kept that suit on, she didn't take it off. Um, she said, I want the world to see what they've done to Jack. And that pink Chanel suit um, was put away and is still in the archives of, um, of the American National Archives. Here's Marilyn Monroe wearing Chanel number no. five. Um, she wasn't paid to wear Chanel number no. five, she did. She famously said she wore it. What did, When she was asked, what did you wear to bed? And she was she said, "Chanel, number five, and here's Chanel at the towards the very end of her life, still designing, she still goes on working until right up until the day of her death. She died um in nineteen seventy one in her eighties, she was still designing for her next couture collection her what would be her final couture collection which was shown just uh 2 weeks after her death after her death and so 1971 that's more than half a century ago and half a century onwards she's still surprising us she's still beguiling us we're still following her or at least I still am. I still want to discover more about her, to discover that she was supporting the French resistance. I feel when I look at that picture, I can feel her looking at me and saying, yeah, I can still surprise you, but I might well still have some secrets. So here's to her secrets. (laughs)